Well, good morning. If you will open your Bibles to James chapter 1. If you are visiting with us and you do not have a Bible there, it's hopefully one located in the seat in front of you or around you. And that is our gift to you this morning. In the first chapter, James is laying down a foundation, the, the, the groundwork in which he will expound upon in chapters 2 through 5. The examples and commands that James gives in chapters 2 through 5 of his book are, are founded upon and laid upon the groundwork that he is laying in chapter 1. When a builder sets out to build a house and he goes out and he first surveys the land and once he's determined that the land is good, he levels out the land and he lays a foundation. And on the foundation he raises the walls, he places a roof, he lays a floor. A builder will not come and start raising walls and placing roof and laying floors on land that has no firm foundation. Why? Because eventually the house will fall. A storm will come, the walls will lose their center as the ground begins to shift, or the, the walls will lose their square as the ground begins to shift, and eventually the house will fall upon all those who reside within even without a background in architecture or construction, we understand the importance of a foundation and having a strong foundation. The reason we find so many people coming to the book of James and falling into legalism or works-based salvation is because they have neglected to consider the foundation that James is laying in chapter 1. They have sought to erect a house of commands a list of do's and don'ts without understanding the foundation which all of those commands issue forth from. And so this morning we are going to continue considering the foundation that James is laying in chapter 1 for the rest of the book. And so if you will do honor to the reading of God's word and stand as we read James chapter 1 starting in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. If you will pray with me. Lord, as we come and open your word this morning, as we come to consider what you have given us in the book of James, Father, I pray that we would be quick to hear. That we would hear the truth that you have laid out for us in your holy word. I pray that we would not come with preconceived notions that we wouldn't read our own understanding into the text, Father, but that we would get out of the text what it is that you have given to us. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. James 1.19 begins with the phrase, know this, my beloved brothers. It's a phrase that seems straightforward, but in all actuality, it's, it's not. The reason that know this is not as straightforward as it first appears to be is because know this in Greek is an ambiguous term. In the Greek, it is unclear if this term, know this, is an imperative or an indicative. Is this phrase a command, know this, pointing forward 
to the rest of this passage, or is know this an indicative that points back to something we ought to know in verse 18. And right out of the gate, there are a few different understandings of how we should interpret verse 19. And the reason it's important for us to consider this morning, because how we understand know this will affect how we understand verse 19 through 21, and in fact will have implications for the entire book of James. There are some who come to know this in verse 19, and they, and they see the word know as an indicative, that it points back to verse 18, that instead of being included in verse 19, it should be the concluding statement on verse 18, that because we know the truth of the gospel, that, that of his own will he has brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of, that we might be a kind of first fruits from among his creatures, we should know this truth. We should know that we've been brought forth by the word truth, that we've been called out, that we've been set apart as holy. This is what we are to know and what a glorious truth it is to know that we have been brought forth by the will of God. They will see 16 or yeah, 16 through 18 as an inclusio. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, concluding with know this, my beloved brothers, the glorious truth that redemption is not dependent upon you, but because God has saved you. That we don't have to work our way to heaven because God is the one who brings us forth by the word of truth. And so some will interpret know this as an indicative. And others will come and, come and see a break between verse 18 and verse 19. That 1 through 18 is one section. And if you have a section header in your Bible, you might see it laid out this way. That's, that, that verse 19 starts a new section and it might even be titled, Hearing and Doing the Word. And what they see is they see this as an imperative, a command pointing forward from 19 to 21 and onward. They conclude that verse 19 to 21 is best seen as a proverb in the middle of this first chapter. That's a proverb that lays out and, and prepares us for what James is going to address later on in the book, a taste, if you will, of what is to come. Those who see this often end up seeing the book of James as a collection of Proverbs, that, that it serves as a New Testament type of Proverbs, that James jumps from topic to topic to topic for the benefit of the believers so that we might know how to live. And if we were to consider these two, I think, in all actuality, the King James comes closest to translating this correctly, even though I think it takes the first root. The King James Version says, Wherefore, wherefore, for this reason, pointing back to verse 18, for this reason that you have been brought forth by the word of truth to be a kind of first fruits, for this reason, wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. What James is doing in this passage is not setting down a proverb randomly in the middle of the first chapter, nor is he calling us, I think, to remember our salvation devoid of commands. What James is doing is reminding us of the basis in which our lives ought to flow. You see, in those first two, it is either imperative or indicative. Yet there are others that I think correctly leave the ambiguity in the word. That know this is both an indicative pointing back and an imperative pointing us forward. 
See, we can't get to verses 19 through 21 unless we first have verse 18. And we don't end the book in verse 18 because it continues on to verse 19 and 21. I think the best way we might translate this verse is knowing this, that of his will you have been brought forth by the word of truth to be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Knowing that truth, then know this, let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That this phrase, know this, does point back to the indicative nature that we must know the truth of our redemption. And knowing the truth of our redemption, we must know the commands that follow. And what this one phrase does is it transitions us from the monergistic work of God in justification to the synergistic work of God and man in sanctification. These terms might be new for, for some of you here this morning, so maybe I want to offer a brief, simplified definition of what monergism is and what synergism is. Monergism is the interaction of one agent to produce an effect. And synergism is the interaction of two or more agents to produce an effect. So monergism, maybe even more simply, depends on one person. Synergism is two or more persons. And know this transitions us from the monergistic work of justification to the synergistic work of sanctification, of God working alone to God and believer working. There are three pitfalls that we see in Christendom throughout church history when it comes to understanding monergism and synergism. First misunderstanding and pitfall is that both are monergistic work. People will come and see that justification and sanctification solely depend on God. One of the most significant theologies that have come out of this was the theology of perfectionism. What perfectionism does is it argues that God justifies man. That God alone is the one that saves men, but it is also God alone that sanctifies man. And, and, and they end up classifying Christians into two different classes. There are those who are saved who have been justified, but they are not sanctified. And this is the majority of Christians in the world. They are saved as if just passing through a fire. That though they have been justified, there is no evidence of sanctification in their life. There is no deep desire to know God intimately in their lives, but they are justified the none, nonetheless. And there's a second class of Christians, those few elite who are sanctified. And they are those who God has brought to perfection. The believer no longer struggles with sin. They're no longer tempted by sin, but they live perfectly because God has sanctified them. And they have received what is called often as the second blessing. That the believer can ask God for it, but it is God alone who sanctifies the believer. And if God does not give you the second blessing, then you will continue your life justified, but living in unrepentant sin. Or in the vein of monergism, there are those who believe that justification and sanctification is is not a work of God alone, but a work of man alone. Man is justified by God, not by the blood of Jesus Christ, but by his ability to maintain works. This view primarily sees scripture as a book of do's and don'ts. And our justification rests solely upon doing more good than bad. The Pharisees fell into this category seeking righteousness in their 
own strength, seeking to perfect the law apart from the grace of God. Our culture is filled with this mentality. Their belief about heaven, about being justified, ultimately comes down to the good outweighing the bad. This is a summary of almost every false religion we see in the world today. Their only hope of heaven, their only hope of some kind of paradise rests in their ability to do more good than to do bad. If you obey the commands and you've pleased your deity and on the day of your death, if you, when, the, when the scales of justice are weighed, if you've done more good than you get to enter into paradise, they believe that sanctification and justification are both man alone. The others have denied monergism altogether and believe that justification and sanctification is an act of both God and man. That God has done all that he can do for our salvation and the rest is dependent upon us. It is up to us to choose to follow him. God is mighty enough for the death, burial, and resurrection, but he is not able or unwilling to bring us to salvation, to, to bring us the rest of the way. Salvation ultimately depends on our willingness to choose God. Many view salvation not as something that brings death to life, although they won't deny that language, but they see it more as a sick person who needs and receives medicine. And then with God's help, we work out our salvation, seeking to be holy. And then lastly, and I think this is the view that is held by most evangelicals in our culture today, is that there are men who view justification as a synergistic work of God and man, and sanctification as a monergistic work of the work of man alone. Much like the previous group, they come before God in justification, thinking that God has done all that he can do, and then it is up to us to finish the work. God has thrown out a life ring that we must grab on. God has provided the medicine, we must take it. God has provided a way for the atonement, we must take the atonement, and we must apply it to our lives. And so salvation, justification, is an act of God and man. And then they come to sanctification, and they view it as solely dependent upon them. If they're to defeat sin in their lives, you try harder and harder. And if you fail, it's because you're weak and you just need to try harder the next time. And what this ultimately breeds is self-righteous, arrogant attitude. That I can pull myself up by the bootstraps and I can be better. What ultimately we see follow out from this is a looking down on other believers. Historically, this theology is called Arminianism and is most prevalent in the church culture today. And, and, and the sad thing with this view is it often concludes and leads to the, the, the claim that we can lose our salvation. Because sanctification is solely dependent upon us and our ability to keep and maintain the works of God that if we are unable to do so, we can lose our salvation. And the Christian life becomes a cycle of trying, trying, trying sin and then rededicate your life to Christ. And try, try, try and sin and rededicate your life or, or, or be re-saved. That's why we see a vent after event or camps where, where they proclaim the gospel message and it's a big emotional endeavor. And then they have people come down forward to be saved or to rededicate their lives. And across this nation, almost on a weekly basis, are, are swaths of Christians who have tried, 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 and they've sinned. 
And then they have to rededicate their lives to God and try again. And all three significantly miss the mark of Scripture because they follow the emotions of men. Those who value freedom as the pinnacle of God's desire for our lives will tend towards Arminianism. And those who, who do not like to work and toil will lean towards perfectionism. But what I think we see clearly in James 1, 18 through 21 is both monodrism, justification as an act of God, and synergism as, as a sanctification being God and man. So what we see in verse 18 is that salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This new birth is a work of God alone. From before the foundation of the world, God set his love on a particular people, and he is at work redeeming those people. The work of redemption is a monergistic work. It is the act of God alone. Salvation from beginning to end belongs to the Lord. Romans 8, 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, those whom he intimately knew and set his love upon, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of God in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What God begins, he completes. Those whom God justifies, he sees through to the end and brings them to glorification is not dependent on man whatsoever. This is why the believer can have assurance in their salvation. If the assurance of our salvation rested in our ability to maintain works, we would all lose our salvation. Before you stepped foot at those doors, you would have lost your salvation. It is dependent upon God alone. And for that reason, we may have confidence that if we are children of God, we will one day see him as he is. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Maybe John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Maybe Acts 13, verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is what James is telling us in verse 18. That justification, our salvation from beginning to end, is the work of God alone. The only thing we bring to our salvation is what makes it necessary, and that is our sin. But we can be confident in our salvation because it is God's prerogative to save us and not our own. Our second birth is as dependent upon us as our first birth was, and that is not at all. God alone acts in our justification. This is what James is telling us in verse 18. So where does synergism come in? If monergism is the work of God alone, where do we get God and man? What we see is that for those whom God has redeemed, he calls them to be holy, for he is holy. 1 Peter 1, 15. Though the redemption of Though the redemption is the work of God alone, the process of sanctification is the work of both God and 
the redeemed. This is what James is leading us to in verses 19 through 21. And in fact, the rest of the book is a book on sanctification. And this does not and cannot occur from verse 18 being true. But then we see verse 19 through 21. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with, with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. In verse 20, the, the, the producing of the righteousness of God is not a righteousness that justifies us. It is sanctification. Though we have been declared righteous in Christ, and in fact, because we have been declared righteous in Christ, pursue righteousness. This is what James is writing about in verse 20. That having been set free from sin and death, we are called to pursue Christ and live for Christ. 1 Timothy 4, 6-10. through 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of good doctrine that you have followed, having nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set upon the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. The believer is called to toil and strive, to train himself for righteousness, to work. James 1.21, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. I'm going to read that again. 2 Timothy 2, verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The second, the sanctification is always preceded by the first, by justification. The Lord knows who are his. Because before the foundation of the world, he set his love upon them, and he is redeeming them. The Lord knows who are his. That is justification. Therefore, belonging to the Lord, depart from all iniquity. If therefore, if we are resting on the promise of James 1.18, then God calls you to pursue righteousness. There is no place in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation where God redeems a people to be stagnant. The work of the believer is just that. It is work. It is pursuing holiness. It is a work prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Justification. You are saved by grace through faith. This is a gift from God. And then we see sanctification in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has justified us, and he is calling us to sanctification. And what are these good works that he has prepared for the redeemed before they were ever saved, before they were ever born? And those works are 
righteousness, the conformity of our lives to that of Christ. This is the power of the gospel, to not only redeem the lost, but to conform them into the image of Christ. Christendom tells us that we are loved by God, warts and all. God doesn't care how we live as long as we love him. That is a lie because it denies the very gospel they purport to tell. We have been redeemed to be a kind of firstfruits, to pursue righteousness. We have not been saved to remain in sin, but to live in Christ. This is the call of the redeemed, to be sanctified, to be holy, for the Lord our God is holy. And so sanctification then is very much a work of man. We work and we toil and we strive and we train. It's very much a work of man. Philippians 2, 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's that word again. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Assuming you are redeemed, assuming you have been taught who Christ is, and assuming you are resting in Christ, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. First Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Train yourselves for godliness. We are to work out our salvation. We're to put off the old man and to put on the new. We are to train ourselves for godliness. To deny the work of man in the process of sanctification is to deny the truth of Scripture. To sit back and never actively seek to put to death the sins of the flesh and waiting for God to take away all temptation is to refuse the means which God has given us for our sanctification. We are to work and toil and strive and then spend our energy pursuing holiness. Why? Because of verse 18, because you have been justified. And if you have been justified, then pursue righteousness. It is a work of man. It is at this point that many fall into the snare of legalism. They begin to view righteousness as something that we can obtain in our own Strength. Men will formulate idolatry. Idolatry. Sure. Idolatries and ideologies of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. There's little grace for new believers and those who are struggling with sin because they have become self-righteous and arrogant. They have become Pharisees seeking to, to earn a righteousness by their works. They will come to the book of James with joy. Because now I have a checklist of things that I need to do. And I have a checklist of things that you need to do. And they will come to James seeking to find their justification in their good works. Rather than seeing justification as the grounds for their good works. And so scripture tells us something different. Sanctification is not the monergistic work of man. But it is the synergistic work of God and man. Sanctification is very much the work of man, of the redeemed, but it is very much the work of God. Earlier we read Philippians 2, 12. Now listen to it in its context of Philippians 2, 13. Therefore, my beloved brothers, 
have you as always obeyed, obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 12, now 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See how revealing passages can be when we start to see them in, in their context? Yes, we are called to work out our salvation. But even the desire to pursue righteousness comes from God. The will in our heart for God comes from God. The strength to gather together with believers, to reverently come before God, to sing praises to Him for His glory, all of those things which are a means of our sanctification are a gift from God. We would, have, we would not even begin to have that desire apart from God willing and working in us. And so we see in this passage is desire for holiness, the strength for sanctification, the means to pursue holiness is a grace of God. In our own will, in our own strength, we would be tempted by sin and we would succumb to it. In our own will, in our own strength, we would have no desire for the things of God. And in every single temptation, we would fall into sin. We would be the vilest of all creation. It is God's grace to will and to work in us that we might work out our salvation. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 14. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't become arrogant when you see yourself pursuing righteousness. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God's mercy and grace on full display. For the redeemed, he will not let us be tempted beyond our ability. God willing and working, he provides a way of escape that we might be able to stand up and endure the temptation. We cannot stand, we cannot flee from idolatry unless God provides a way of escape. And that escape is found from God and in God. Without God, we cannot endure temptation. We would gladly give into it. So this is what James is telling us in, in, in James 1 verse 21. That sanctification is a synergistic work. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Put off, receive. These are the acts of men who have been redeemed. We are to put off filthiness and rampant wickedness. And we do this by receiving. It is, once again, another word by receiving. By receiving what? With meekness, the implanted word. What God has done for us. What God has given us. And this is the second time in the book of James that we have encountered the word word. In verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits. And then in verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. It is the word which brings life and it is the word which sustains life. Our strength, our hope, our pursuit of righteousness is in the word of God. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, in John 17, 17, he says, he prays to God, sanctify them 
and truth. Your word is truth. The Holy Spirit leads us into the truth of God's word. This is the promise of the new covenant that we see in Ezekiel 36, verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We are justified. The Holy Spirit indwells us. And God causes us through the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in his ways and to obey his rules. It's the Holy Spirit who reveals to us the righteousness of God in the pages of Scripture. Without the Holy Spirit showing us truth, we'd be blind and deaf. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. The spirit of God reveals to us the truth of Scripture, reveals to us God in the pages of Scripture, and he causes us to walk in the commands and obey the commands of the Lord. Sanctification, then, is the process by which the Holy Spirit opens one's eyes more and more to the light of God's Word. And as God's Word exposes our sins, we cling to Christ more, finding our redemption in the shadow of the cross. This is the process of sanctification. That as we come to God's Word, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, He gives us understanding of that Word. And as we see God for who He is, glorious, majestic, lifted high, just, and righteous, and as that light shines brighter into our lives, we begin to see how filthy and sinful we are. Which then brings us to the cross. To see the work of Jesus Christ once again so glorious and magnificent that, that, that what we thought Jesus had saved us from is so much greater than we had ever noticed before. This is sanctification. Verse 18 reveals the monergistic nature of our justification alone. And 19 through 21 shows us our sanctification, the synergistic work between God and the redeemed. And so with this in mind, that God alone justifies. And having justified us, he calls us to pursue holiness and he strengthens us and he empowers us to that. I think we can better understand that portion which some come to consider to be a proverb in the middle of James. I think rather than seeing it a proverb that's just dumped in here in light of what we know that God has done in our lives and in light of what we have been called to do, we see verses 19 through 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James is not coming out of nowhere to state a truth, but is preparing the reader to hear the word of truth and to receive that truth with meekness. James is going to spend the majority of his letter, chapter, chapters 2 through 5, addressing and calling out sin. Sin that must be repented of. And those who are in Christ, those who, verse 18, rings true, they must hear, which comes by the power of the Holy Spirit, and receive this truth with meekness. The truth must not go in one ear and out the other, but it must be truly heard. I don't know, husbands, if, if you've ever been guilty of that, where you're doing something and your wife is speaking to you and, and, and she's asking you questions and then you just look up and realize she's been talking to you for a period of time. 
And you've realized she's been speaking, but you didn't hear her. This is what James is talking about. We can come to the Word of God, we can read God's Word and never hear it. We can come in here on a Sunday morning and listen to the preaching and never hear the Word of God. But once we come in the power of the Holy Spirit, being indwelled by the Holy Spirit, desiring to see God, then we desire to hear truth. When we truly hear the Word and meditate upon it and evaluate evaluate it, we apply it, and that produces righteousness. Believers ought to be quick to hear the word of truth because the believer is one who desires to be like the Savior. And the believer understands and knows that this is the means that God uses to conform us into the image of Christ. And so a believer is one who desires to hear truth. And if we are to be sanctified, conformed into the image of Christ, put off the old man, we must be quick to hear the word of God and slow to speak and slow to anger. We must position ourselves under the word and not lord over it. James tells us, hear the word. That is positioning ourselves under the word. But when we come to speak quickly and to anger quickly, we begin to lord over that word, which we are to receive with meekness. And so sometimes what we see is that when the word of God exposes sin, there are those who aren't quick to hear, but they're quick to speak. That is, they're quick to justify and defend the sin in their life. They offer defenses and justifications rather than submitting their lives to the word of God. The justification for sin is what we see in Romans 5, 20 through 6, 1, and then even later on in Romans chapter 6. Romans 5, starting in verse 20 Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin is increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace might abound? God's grace is greater than all of our sin, and my sin has been paid for on the cross. Therefore, it doesn't matter how I live because it's been paid for. Who cares what I do because my sin has been paid for on the cross? And, and, and even if I'm supposed to stop sinning, doesn't my sin just show God's grace even more? Instead of 100 sins that he has forgiven me for, he's forgiven me for 120 sins. How foolish. And though people may not verbalize that kind of language, it may not be as blatant. Justification of sin still occurs Justification of sin in our lives disguises itself, I think, in a few different kind of statements. Well, at least I don't do this. When we're confronted with sin, or the truth of God's word, well, at least I don't, whatever. At least I don't get drunk on a Saturday night and run around cruising for women. Well, at least I don't scream and yell at my wife. At least I don't do whatever it is. Or maybe it sounds like, well, well you do the same thing. Don't, don't get on to me for yelling in the relationship because you just yelled at me yesterday. And if you do the same thing, who are you to tell me that I am wrong? Or maybe the most prevalent in our culture, God loves me as I am. When we're confronted with the truth of sin, it's okay because God loves and accepts me for who I am. This is who he created me to be and that's all that matters. And in all of these instances, when the word of God is brought to bear on sin, men are not quick to hear, they are quick to speak. 
And there's another result, though, for men who are slow to hear the word of God, and that is they are quick to anger. When confronted with the word of truth, some men become angry. And the reason they become angry is because they are self-righteous. They've moved beyond being quick to speak, offering a brief defense, but they are quick to anger because they are self-righteous in their position. How dare you say that I'm living in sin? Who are you to point out anything in my life? Not that there's anything to point out when you have so many logs in your own eye. And rather than repent, they grow bitter and angry, justifying in their hearts that they are righteous because of the list of good things that they seem to do regardless of what the Word says about their lives. The Word of God comes and instead of hearing it and receiving it in meekness and repenting of their sins and clinging to Christ for salvation, they're quick to angry, quick to anger, quick to justify, quick to defend, quick to cast dispersion on all those around And the anger of man does not produce, as we see in verse 20, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God because it always elevates the self-righteousness of men. There's some that ask, what about righteous anger? Can't we have righteous anger? Of course, but that's not what James is talking about in this passage. The reason we know it's not what James is talking about because righteous anger will be quick to hear the word. And it will be slow to speak and it will be slow to anger. I'll be quick to hear the word to see if the anger that we have is truly righteous. If we are angry because God has been blasphemed. If we're angry because it is God who is sinned against. We will be quick to look to the word of scripture to see if that anger is truly righteous. And then we will be slow as we meditate on the situation. Righteous anger is neither, is neither slow to hear or quick in action. And then James concludes this section in verse 21. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. And I believe what James is doing with this last statement is tying 18 to 21 together. And I want to preface what I'm going to talk about in James 1.21 by answering a question, does God save people and immediately take them to be with him? Yes. We see that with the thief on the cross, that he is justified, and when he dies, he knows that he will be with the Lord that day. We hear of deathbed redemptions and conversions where, where men are justified on the brink of death and the Lord brings them home. That does occur. But the normal course of life for the redeemed is one of progressive sanctification, a life more and more, sometimes in small steps, sometimes in leaps and bounds, but a life that is more and more being conformed to the image of Christ. This is what the believer is called to. Looking once again to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, starting at verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus' prayer for the redeemed is not that as soon as they are justified, they will be brought home. But as they are justified and they live out their life on this earth, that they would be sanctified. And they are sanctified by the truth of the word. 
So the one who has been genuinely brought forth, as we see in verse 18, the one who has truly been justified, he will hear and receive with meekness the word of God working out his salvation. Nowhere in scripture do we see someone who is who has been redeemed and not sanctified. Justification always leads to sanctification. If we were to, to scour the pages of Scripture, apart from those few examples where God justifies someone and, and brings them home, we do not see an example in Scripture where someone is justified, redeemed, purchased, and then continues to live their life in sin. Justification always leads to sanctification. Nor do we see anywhere in Scripture where sanctification occurs apart from justification. What we see is the Pharisees trying to work out this kind of mentality. To to do the works of God. To somehow earn righteousness. But we never see true holiness apart from God first having justified. From God first bringing someone from death to life and then they are called to holiness. And what we see is the redeemed person's life is marked both by justification and sanctification, and his soul is secure. And the end of James 1.21 ties 18 through 21 together. Our soul is secure because we have been justified. And that justification always leads to sanctification. And when we know that we are justified by the blood of Christ, and we see the evidence of salvation, or we see the evidence of sanctification, the pursuit of holiness, the desire for the things of God evident in our lives over the course of time, we can be secure knowing that our soul will be secure. And so in closing, if you are here this morning, and you are resting on your works to save you, you can be assured they won't. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. If you think there is a number of things you can do from this book that will somehow justify you in the eyes of God, on judgment day you will find out quickly that they will not. We cannot work and earn our salvation. Verse 18 tells us this beautiful truth. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits among his creation. God redeems us and he redeems us through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is what we are to rest on as believers. We cannot rest in our works to save us. We must rest in grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And if you're resting here on a prayer that you prayed at one time and there is no evidence, none, zip, zero, nada, there is no evidence or desire for Christ in the course of your life, you can rest assured that your prayer will not save you. For the sheep of God hear his voice and obey his commands. Those who are justified will be sanctified. That's not to say we somehow enter into a state of perfection. We somehow come to a point where we're no longer tempted. We no longer struggle and fall and into, into sin. But that is over the course of our life, we see ourselves being conformed to the image of Christ, not because we're somehow great and perfect, but because God wills and works through us, through the Holy Spirit, revealing his word to us and conforming us into the image of Christ. So we can't rest on works because your works will not save you. You should not rest on something you've done when there is zero evidence 
of sanctification and the pursuit of holiness in your life. When there is no desire and joy for the things of God, you should not rest thinking you will be justified. And to the one who has been brought forth by the word of truth, who though though not perfectly is slow to hear and receive the word of God in meekness, being conformed to the image of Christ, rest assured that your soul will be saved. This is the comfort of God working in our lives. That we can have assurance of our salvation, not because of how great we are, but because God has begun a good work in us. And in the work that he began, he continues in the process of sanctification. And as we grow, one day he brings it to completion at glorification. And we will see him as he is and we will praise him for all eternity. Not because we were able to, to defeat sin by pulling up the boots on our on our pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, but because we were laid low before the cross. And we see the work that he did, and we praise him and worship him for that which he has done for us. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the word of truth that you have given us. Father, I pray for the redeemed in here that we would never be slow to hear your truth, Father, but that when we are confronted by your holy word, we would be quick to hear. Father, that we would not seek to, to justify sin in our life. That we would not become angry in self-righteousness. Father, that we would view your word as a means of our sanctification. That we would receive it in meekness. That we would be humbled before you. That you not live, leave us in our sins and trespasses. Father, would you guide us to the conformity of the image of Christ. Father, I pray that we would rest solely on verse 18, that we are justified by grace alone. Not our works, not our ability to be perfect, but because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I pray that if there are any in here resting on their works or resting on an act with no true justification, no sanctification evident in their life, Father, that you would reveal that truth to them, that this morning they would be quick to hear the gospel, that they would come to Christ recognizing that he is the only way of redemption and that you would birth them anew. Father, for the believer, may we find comfort in knowing that you will complete the good work you began. Father, that it is you willing and working in us. And as we desire you more, we look forward with confidence knowing that you have saved.